Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Hi, I'm Rory Horner from the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute and I'm really delighted to be here today with uh, Dr. Siobhan McGrath, Assistant Professor in Human Geography at Durham University. Uh, Siobhan is here to give a talk later today and it's a pleasure to have you here today, Siobhan. Thanks, Rory. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, so you're going to be talking, what will you be talking about later today and can you tell us a little bit how you came to that research? Sure. Um, the paper today is very much about the policy field or the field of interventions around contemporary slavery okay. uh, or human trafficking, forced labor, um, different terms that sort of overlap. Um, so it's about sort of the interventions that are made in the name of fighting slavery. And that might be policy, it might be a program or a corporate social responsibility initiative. So for people who think slavery was something that happened in history but doesn't take place today, what what is and what is the extent and what is modern-day slavery? Well, it's not actually a term I prefer, okay. <laughs> but it's the most common term. Um, so that's why it's a bit um, critical, a lot, of, a lot of what is done in the name of fighting, I should say, so-called slavery. Um, but there are, of course, many really extreme um, forms of labor abuse and exploitation that depend on um, mechanisms that look very that do not look like what we would imagine free labor to be. So debt bondage, um, tight accommodation, um, okay. you know, migrants having their passport taken and threatened with deportation. So various ways in which um, workers can be highly exploited and abused um, because they are prevented from moving jobs or even physically moving around. So this takes place in all parts of the world? Yes, <laughs> to varying degrees. Yeah. Um, there are some estimates, but again, those are highly critiqued, um, and it depends on which term you're using and how you're defining it. Okay. So in terms of how you came to this research, because I think you you did your PhD here a number of years ago, that's correct? Yeah, yeah. What, what did you work on for that, and then how did, how did your research evolve after that? So I've always been interested in labor and the political economy of labor, um, and after doing my master's degree uh, at the New School for Social Research in Economics, it was a heterodox political economy program, um, I started working uh, as a policy researcher at uh, what was then called the, the Economic Justice Project of the Brennan Center for Justice. And we were looking at violations of labor and employment law. Um, and through that project, I decided to pursue a PhD. Um, and I had also been through studying domestic work in New York and hearing about things that are mm. called trafficking um, or forced labor. Um, and then that was when I got in touch with Wendy Olson um, and she said she was uh, teaching in development studies. Okay. <laughs> so I shifted to development studies and did my PhD at what was then called the Institute of Development Policy and Management. <laughs> now called Global Development Institute. And um, your PhD was on Brazil, is that correct? Yeah, so I decided to do it in Brazil partly because there is a real problem with um, yeah. what you might call forced labor there, but also because at the time they were gaining a reputation as actually addressing the problem in a really useful way. Okay. Um, so while I was doing my PhD, the International Labor Organization uh, published a report that was called Combating Forced Labor, the Example of Brazil. 
uh, and arguably they they were doing more at the time than say the UK or mm. the US, who you would expect to have more resources to to combat this issue. Um, but they were really integrating it within a kind of labor rights framework, mm. um, and they were uh, yeah they would. Um, there was a sort of special. There is a special labor inspectorate that um, responds to suspicions of what is referred to there as slave labor. Mm. So I looked at two sectors. So one was sugarcane, and the other was garment work. And in sugarcane, it's migrant workers from inside Brazil. Um, but when those workers were uh, removed from a situation of slave labor, they would be given unemployment insurance, they would be given other assistance, they would be transported back home, and the workers themselves always took a collective decision as to whether they wanted to be rescued and whether they wanted to be removed. Um, often these inspectors would instead kind of settle the problems. If it was a case of underpayment that was not so severe and extreme, they would actually address mm. the labor issues and leave the workers there. Um, but in other cases, the situation was so terrible that the workers would want to leave. Mm. But again, what's different is they were given a lot of support in then kind of finding their way back to some sense of economic security. Mm. Um, so I think on the whole, and you know, I can also criticize the programs, but on the whole, I think that the reputation they were gaining was uh, justified. The second case was um, involved cross-border migrants from Bolivia and other mm -hmm. Latin American countries. And there at the time, there was much less progress because um, because they were immigrants and because some of them might have been undocumented um, and because it wasn't the sort of particular inspection team that focuses on this issue, mm. which was carrying out those inspections. It was the local labor inspection team and they didn't have the same understanding. Um, so that was the PhD. Um, so how have you, have you sort of continued? <laughs> you've clearly maintained this continued yeah, interest in, been, in unfree uh, labor and in other uh, very poor labor conditions around the world. So how have you continued this research post PhD? Um, I've done a lot of thinking about freedom and unfreedom in labor yeah. relations and what that actually means um, and have been writing about that. Uh, but then I started to actually, and this is where today's paper came in, um, look at this policy field and look at how people understand slavery, if that's what they call it, trafficking, if that's what they mm. call it, and then how they think that should be responded to. So are you talking about international organizations here or national governments or? Yeah, at every scale. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really incredible. I keep thinking that, um, you know, this cause is going to kind of fade into the background and people will start getting concerned with something else, but it's just growing and growing. Um, and I'm not convinced that it's always helping the people it aims to help. Okay, so so what do you think, first of all, sort of accounts for the rise of so much focus on, on contemporary, if we don't use the term modern-day slavery, but at least this terminology has become much more yeah. commonly used in recent years, and why are these policy organizations talking about it so much now, and maybe I presume they might not have been so much uh, a couple of decades ago? Yeah, so I mean, if you go back to the 1990s in the U.S., there was a kind of um, alliance of so-called radical feminists with evangelical Christian groups okay. uh, that sort of pushed forward the anti-trafficking legislation, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in the U.S., and were also involved with the uh, formulation of the U.N. trafficking protocol okay. around the same time. And at that time, there was a lot of attention on sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. Okay. Um, and 
a lot of the critique has to do with that and with the way that um, you know some of these folks were maybe more concerned about the sexual aspect of it than the trafficking aspect of it. Okay. And there was sort of a moral agenda as well. Um, but over time, it sort of broadened to, um, to include other forms of labor. And I think in some ways that's really positive, that some of the yeah. sort of things that we might have called sweatshops in the past yeah. uh, or you know, other forms of whether it's agricultural labor or um, you know, fishing or what have you, um, are now, I think they've been raised through that label of slavery or trafficking because people see that it's a really powerful rhetoric. So in, yeah. some, in some ways, it's really hopeful that that is getting more attention and is being so, seen as... Because at that time, I guess, as well, the 1990s, it would, late 90s, there would have been a lot of growing attention to sweatshop conditions and yeah, global yeah. value chains and things like this. But in a way, this talk now is a way to kind of... or focus on the issue of slavery is one that cuts across a variety of different types of labor issues in different geographic contexts. Yeah, definitely. But it yeah. maybe um, encompasses a lot of things that are really quite different and those kind of mechanisms okay. by which people are being exploited are really context-specific. I guess both uh, benefits to that, but also some cost to, to, to losing sight of some of those differences too? Or Exactly. And I think that, again, this, you know, this kind of the understanding the issue in this way might have um, not lasted as long if some really labor rights activists kind of ensured that um, combating slavery, trafficking, and forced labor was in the Sustainable Development Goals under okay. Target 8.7. Okay. Um, so I think that also gave it sort of renewed life. Okay. And are there are there particular organizations that have driven this? And these activists, are they, are they based in North America and Europe, or is it a, a coalition of activists from different parts of the world? Um, there definitely has been a sense in which it was rooted in the U.S. initially, and so the U.S., um, and this is partly because of government agendas. So the U.S., you know, sort of puts themselves forward as the anti-trafficking police of the world. Mm. Um, and more recently, the U.K. has come in and said that they want to be leaders in the fight against modern slavery. So, and that means that, you know, these movements are particularly strong in those countries, but they exist everywhere. And there was um, recently uh, a proposed law in India to an anti-trafficking law last year. Um, that did not go through, okay. <laughs> but it, you know you see it sort of everywhere where there's legislation on labor exploitation, but then uh, a new law that covers trafficking and slavery that's some sort of um, substitutes for that a bit. Okay, and I but it's really diverse, so it's really hard to know yeah. if it's a policy field because kind of anybody okay. and everybody can say that they're fighting slavery or trafficking. Yeah, and, and again, there are real abuses underlying it, but sometimes the meaning of it gets a bit. And perhaps fuzzy. also different parts of the political spectrum can all kind of to somewhat agree on that they're against slavery but then a lot comes down to well then what is it what do we then do about that and how do we define that and interpret that yeah, i guess or? exactly because who's not against slavery yeah <laughs> so and it's kind that's of the kind of power of the idea of anti-slavery but also i guess part of its ambiguity and and, yeah. and challenge as well exactly so it's also about you know what is the cause of it um, and so there are a lot of kind of corporate leaders and celebrities that also are concerned about this and uh, see themselves as leaders in this field. But, you know, it also, when you think about what slavery means and what it looks like, it's also about what causes it. Is it about kind of, is it about, so the kind of dominant paradigm has been labeled as the criminal justice paradigm. That's about okay. some rogue criminals who are kind of taking advantage of people when, of course, there's more structural explanations. Okay. So when you say... We've talked about the different organizations and, and activists behind this, but when you say the policy framing of it, this is in terms of 
perhaps what you were just getting onto there, that it's 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 defined and uptaken in a certain way, but there perhaps are other ways that we could think about that are that yeah. are, are missed out on and that we actually in terms of addressing labor issues we really need to also focus on. Is that correct? Yeah, and they do exist. So in the US, um, the coalition of Immokalee workers, for example, is really famous for combating slavery in the field. Um, they organize tomato pickers. Um, and they have an anti-slavery program, but it's integrated within a wider labor rights framework. And they've organized migrant workers, um, and they have developed what they call a model of worker-driven social responsibility as an alternative to corporate social responsibility, oh, yeah. where the workers actually help draft the code of conduct, um, they help monitor the code of conduct, uh, and the agreement with the growers and the purchasers, the buyers in the supply chain, is legally binding. Okay. So that's an example of a group that uses this term. Um, mm -hmm. They've taken court cases where um, you know the courts have found that it is quite literally slavery or indentured mm -hmm. servitude, according to um, not the kind of contemporary laws, but long-standing laws that mm -hmm. <laughs> refer to historical practices. Um, but again, that's that's not all they do. They actually are looking to improve the conditions of those workers in terms of wages, in terms of health and safety, in terms of the kind of health of the sexual abuse and harassment that had been faced by many workers in the field. Um, so mm -hmm. it's also about, yeah, where you can, where you see that problem. Do you see that problem existing in isolation or do you see it as part of a wider issue around um, labor rights and often supply chain dynamics? Okay. So, so when you talk today about the business of abolition and marketizing anti-slavery, what do you mean as the business of this and what marketizing it means? So I've been really interested in the way that this cause, this sort of social cause, which objects to the commodification of human mm. beings, um, has been commodified itself, where people are, in some cases, literally making money off of it. So that could be um, through offering compliance tools, yeah. uh, risk analysis of, you know, what is the risk of slavery in your supply chain? Um, so who's, do, who's doing this? Is this consulting companies? Yeah, or? so there are, I mean, usually firms that were already uh, involved in compliance and corporate social responsibility, but they have particular products that are specific to this topic, um, or they'll, you know, yeah, be hired as consultants or trainers. Um, you can, you know, get certified as an anti-trafficking expert for like a okay. thousand quid. <laughs> okay. um, you know, various kind of associations offer that. Um, so but, who, who are the actors in this anti-slavery industry? Well, there's also, in addition to, to the sort of training and compliance, there's also um, people producing uh, survivor-made goods, for example, where former victims of trafficking are given the opportunity okay. to make some jewelry or clothing that you can buy. Um, and sometimes it's not clear whether they're former victims or not, but it's still okay. called survivor-made goods. So there's... Um, there's also a fund from uh, called Humanity United, and it's a hedge fund looking for um, innovative business solutions to modern slavery that will um, that will produce a good uh, reward for investors. <laughs> so there's you know there's kind of a lot of different ways that it's um, intersecting with markets and commodification. And of course, it's also, as in general, in the world of nonprofits and NGOs, there's sort of this market logic today mm. in terms of how different nonprofit organizations mm. have to sort of sell their cause and sell their own yeah. uniqueness in that field. That's kind of the background to it. But I'm interested in, again, the way that um, 
the way that sometimes it is literally profit driven and what that means. Okay. So the, 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 there's, there's, there's a industry that's emerged and I guess as perhaps I can ask a naive question, but some parts of this is a good thing, but there's also problematic aspects to it, you'd say? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, so the other aspect of it is, um, you know, the companies that are the compliance firms that are making money off of this are obviously seeking to rehabilitate the reputation yeah. of the firms that might be caught up in these supply chain scandals, you know, at best by yeah. actually eliminating <laughs> um, forced labor and severe labor exploitation from their supply chains. Um, at worst, of course, by, it, you know, through a PR exercise. Um, but for me, the risk is that it treats slavery, forced labor, or trafficking as this sort of external risk where companies just sort of, you know, with the best of intentions happen to source from the wrong supplier and, okay. you know, then they're unwittingly <laughs> caught up in this hmm. terrible situation that they would never have wanted as opposed to really thinking through um, the kind of pressures that are passed through the supply chain that result in that. Because these are some of the more structural features that yeah. are creating some of these conditions in the first place that actually mean the challenge of eradicating slavery in a in a contemporary context is not as straightforward as some of these campaigns might make it seem. Yeah, and I worry that if people see, you know, kind of rescuing these victims as an answer without providing an alternative livelihood, or if they see companies kind of mapping the risk and staying away from so-called hotspots mm. as the answer, then we won't actually address mm. the root causes. So are there particular industries for this and this marketizing of of anti-slavery has been particularly prominent in, or is it something we really see across the board? I mean, I think it maps onto the sort of general interest in ethical goods where people are particularly oh, yeah. concerned around so more food, yeah. garments, you know, those things that there's some sort of emotional attachment to. Mm -hmm. um, there was a scandal as well in electronics um, a couple years ago, um, and that's been interesting to watch because it seems to be playing out a bit differently there. And in both... Uh, Industries that are import and products that are imported from faraway places, as well as in more domestic industries, it it, it applies to both. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's very much a, a global issue and one that the SDGs will. Do you see the SDGs so far as I mean, you mentioned earlier it's included in the SDGs. The issue. Do you see any? Has that furthered the attention to it or led to any positive changes? So, in terms of the first kind of issue of where it is, I think this is one of the problems with the global estimates that we have, is they're produced in the global north, and they often, okay. you know, paint the picture as a problem that exists in mainly south. in the global south. But, okay. you know, there's some sort of potential bias there. Mm. That a lot depends <laughs> on how you define it and how you estimate it. And yeah, exactly. So, until we have, you know, those kind of, and those kind of, estimates where it's a headline figure it's kind of made for headline figure oh there's 45 million yeah. victims um are going to get a lot of attention and we don't have actors based in the global south kind of competing uh with that savvy pr exercise so that's one of the problems is it you know is painted as a picture that emerges in the global south but can be solved by the global north mm. and that was you know one of the problems in terms of how that gets translated into development Yep. Because development, of course, is also sometimes painted as, 
something that the global yeah. north can bestow upon the global south. But nonetheless, given that, you know, for a couple of decades now, the dominant paradigm has been understood as criminal justice, where there's what is referred to as the three P's framework, so prevention, prosecution, and protection, right. where most of the emphasis has been on prosecution and kind mm. of getting the bad guys. There's not even a great record on that, mm. but nonetheless, that's where the focus has been. So I think the inclusion in the SDGs is potentially really helpful in that we can start talking about education, health, inequality, yeah. um, you know, even rights. Uh, so it is within the, the goal on decent work. Mm. Um, so that is potentially a much more helpful and holistic framework, but it's not without its potential pitfalls. Okay. And so where, where do you see this issue going? Where do you see its sort of current directions it's going in? the issue of marketizing anti-slavery and are there any particular ways you would really like to see it change? Mm. Or is it, given this is sort of, it's obviously a very current issue and it's also one where there's definitely major problems in terms of labor conditions in the existing in the global north and the global south. So is there a ways that you see this a sort of move of marketizing anti-slavery evolving, but also ways you'd like to see it change or to see other actors come into the picture? I mean, I would like to see, um, obviously, markets reformed, but mm. also I don't think that markets should be held up as the solution. Yeah. Um, so I think that there needs to be much greater attention to the fact that where there are labor rights, that is labor rights violations, that is where you create a risk of these extreme cases. Um, so I would like to see very much a labor rights paradigm, but also a migrants' rights paradigm. Okay. Um, so the labor rights paradigm has been put forward time and again, but mm. it doesn't seem to get much traction. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think if you see it as a kind of logical result of exploitation and abuse, um, then maybe you have a different way of approaching it. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you about this, Siobhan. Yeah, and, uh, thanks for having me. Really look forward, looking forward to the talk and to reading the paper. <laughs>